Hi, everyone. This is Michael Cox for the In Common Podcast. This is the first episode of a new series of the podcast that we are calling Science and Practice. In this series, we will be interviewing guests who conduct applied work on environmental governance and conservation, and who often act at the interface of such work and the scientific study of these topics. In this episode, I'm speaking with Nathan Bennett, a marine conservation expert and an independent consultant who has worked with several national and international organizations, such as the Nature Conservancy, Parks Canada, Environment Canada, Comunidad y Biodiversidad in Mexico, and the Smithsonian Institute. Nathan is also the chair of the People and the Ocean Specialist Group for the International Union for the Conservation of Nature, or IUCN. During our conversation, we talk about Nathan's career path as a consultant and his role in bridging academic and practice-oriented work. I ask him about the role that policy panaceas can play in both theory and practice. And in his response, Nathan describes what I would call a more diagnostic approach that considers the relative costs and benefits of different types of marine policies as an important alternative to panacea thinking. We conclude our conversation by talking about the role of social science in conservation and the challenges and promise of doing interdisciplinary work for conservation, both topics that Nathan has thought and written about. I hope you enjoy my conversation with Nathan Bennett. Thanks for being willing to do this, Nathan. As I just mentioned to you during our talk before I hit the record button, I'm excited to talk to you about your experiences. And the first question I now ask everyone that I interview for this podcast is the one I'm going to ask you. And the version of it will relate to something we were just talking about, which is your reasons for getting the PhD. I'd love to start there. Could you talk to me about what your motivations to get a PhD? I believe, was it in human geography from the University of Victoria? Yeah, that's right. Yep. Okay. Could you talk to me about that decision process and how that led to the work that you ultimately did for your PhD? Sure. Yeah. First, uh, just a real pleasure to be here, and uh, and uh, it'll be fun to chat with you over the next uh, next little while. Tell a bit of my my story and uh, share some thoughts. Um, yeah, I guess my my path to a PhD was not really straight uh, a straight line. Um, I uh, trained. Uh, first in the university system as a as an elementary teacher, uh, and uh, and then uh, when I finished my uh, bachelor of elementary education, I stepped away uh, from uh, the university, went and taught for a while. Um, and as I was teaching, I realized that the the traditional classroom wasn't really for me. So I started teaching, uh, doing other things on the side. So I got trained as a as an outdoor guide, as a leadership educator, uh, and um, uh, facilitator. I did some international development uh, gigs in the, in Latin America, uh, and um, uh, you know, in those experiences, I I was working in um, uh, you know communities in northern Costa Rica where they were you know farmers that were thinking about conservation within the the landscape where they where they lived. Um, it was you know in uh, coastal. Ecuador, where the community was thinking simultaneously about the protection of the, you know, coastal tropical forest, as well as, uh, you know, their community livelihoods. Um, and yeah, and then I did some, uh, you know, some uh, sustainability education uh, and leadership education back in Canada for youth. And at a certain point, I realized that, you know, I wanted something different. So I, you know, realized I, I should probably go spend some more time doing it 
school and decided to do a master's degree um, and ended up in a program at Lakehead University, which is in Thunder Bay, central, central Canada. Um, you know, a nice kind of applied uh, program. Uh, uh, it was a school of outdoor recreation, parks and tourism. And when I arrived there, what I imagined for myself is that I was going to continue on the path that I was on, which was doing, uh, you know, leadership and outdoor education and sustainability education for youth. But I realized very quickly that uh, I kind of wanted to change directions. And the real reason to go back to school for me was to, to be able to learn something new and something different. And so I started to think about what it was that I was excited about, what I'd been excited about the most during, you know, the, the years leading up going back to my master's degree. And, and what excited me the most was my experiences uh, working with communities, uh, both in Canada, but also in Latin America. I, and, and what excited me the most about working with communities was working on uh, environmental conservation projects with those communities. Um, you know, in coastal Ecuador, it was actually mostly with the, the youth in that community because I worked with a Club Ecologico, which was set up after a El Nino event and a bunch of landslides and then a, and an earthquake that happened in that region. Um, you know, and in the north of Costa Rica, it was the it was the farmers. I, I loved their stories. I loved their initiative. I, I, I really felt that, you know, they were the ones that were leading these initiatives. And so I, I wanted to learn more about that. Um, and so I walked around and I talked to every single professor in the department um, and I just you wanted to learn more about them and what they were up to and and uh, if they had any projects and what happened is that one of them gave me a letter and they said you know we sent some students up to this uh, community in northern Canada this indigenous community uh, Lutzelke and uh, they sent us a letter they said they had a really great experience with the students and they'd love to have more students come up there uh, hmm. you know and they were they were talking with uh, the government of Canada about the creation of a national park in their traditional territory. Um, and uh, so, you know, this letter was just a handful of lines it said, we'd be happy to have a researcher come up here and do some support, you know, a master's student uh, reach out to us if you're interested. So I called them and they said, Oh, that's great. Get up here. <laughs> Basically. It's like, okay. you, you know, we don't really want to talk to you unless you come up here and, uh, and, uh, and, and start to work with us here. So I had to figure out a way to raise a few thousand dollars to get up to the Canadian Arctic, just to have a conversation about whether to work with them. Um, so that, that really kind of set me on a trajectory of starting to think about the relationship between humans and nature, between communities and conservation. Uh, and I, you know, worked with the Lutzoke Denny First Nation on it for a couple of years. Um, uh, you know, I feel fortunate to have been able to uh, be a small, play a small part in that process where I was helping them to articulate what it is that they saw, what value they saw in the creation of a national park. And, and, I, and I wrote that, wrote that up. Can I ask you to say a bit more about that, about your experience? That must have been pretty, pretty formative professionally. Can you talk about how your understanding of yourself as an outsider coming into a community, but also trying to get something done with a community developed during that time? Yeah, no, it was it was actually probably one of the most important um, experiences for me in terms of shaping how I approach research, uh, how I think about conservation. Um, uh, you know, when I when I went to uh, 
uh, Lutz okay. Um, I, you know, I flew all the way up there. I'd never uh, been that far north in Canada. I had had various experiences of working with Indigenous communities throughout Canada. Um, and, you know, for those of you who don't know about Canada, we have a pretty harsh colonial history in Canada. Uh, where, uh, you know, Indigenous youth were taken away from their families and they were, uh, the language, um, you know, they tried to crush the language out of them, crush the culture out of them. And many of them uh, were abused and died in residential schools. And so, you know, going to a Northern community like that, um, uh, Lutzoke Dene First Nation had only really moved into a sedentary village about uh, 30 t- uh, years prior. Uh, and simultaneously, I mean, they'd started before that probably 50 or 60 years prior, but, but they'd really kind of formally settled there, um, you know, 30 years prior and the residential school in that community had also only closed, uh, you know, about 20 to 30 years prior to me being there. And so going there, you know, they put me in the chief's house, um, and, uh, uh, you know, I, got there, you know, they're, they're super, um, open and welcoming, but at, I went into the chief's house. I stayed there that night. Uh, when I went to the washroom that evening, uh, and this is, this is funny. I, the first book that was on the back of the toilet was, uh, Linda Tui Y Smith's decolonizing methodologies. Um, mm. and so, you know, I knew immediately that I was, I was in for a good conversation and a, and a real conversation uh, mm. about what it meant to work with a community. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the next day they took me to the chief and council meeting. Actually, no, it was two days later. The next day they took me out, uh, uh, caribou hunting on the land, uh, for, for my first time. Uh, they made me run after a car- herd of caribou across a, across a lake. And then when I, when I'd come around and they'd, they'd already hunted a few of the caribous, they were laughing and laughing and laughing at me and say, saying how funny it was that I'd run across the lake to chase the caribou towards them. <laughs> so, you know, there was lots of, lots of intelligent conversation and lots of, lots of tests in various ways. Um, uh, I learned, uh, you know, a lot. Uh, about hunting about trapping about their 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 connection to the place but the next day I went to the chief and council meeting um, and the chief and council had me present my project my proposed project idea to them and and then at the end of it you know I, I talked through kind of what I thought was an appropriate research methodology and at the end of it they they said to me well that's all well and good but uh, you are going to present that in charts and graphs so that we can use it in our negotiations with the government right um, so, you know, there was a constant uh, uh, push and pull and a constant learning for me about how to work better in, with community, about how to meet their needs, um, while also, you know, raising the funds that I needed to do the project and, uh, and complete a, a, a research project. Um, and I think the thing I learned the most is about deep listening. Um, you know, that's where I, I learned uh, and that you know, one of the roles of the social scientist in society is 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 to be a deep listener, is to listen to people's story, is to represent that story, uh, whether it's in quantitative or qualitative uh, form, uh, but to represent that story accurate accurately, um, so that it can be used by others in uh, 
evidence-informed decision-making, right? So I don't use evidence-based, I use informed. So thinking about those qualitative stories, those values of the land and what that could mean for the creation of a national park, mm. um, you know, representing the level of reliance of people on uh, fish as a source of food or a source of livelihood uh, that could be quantitative data or it could be uh, values-based and taking that into decision-making processes. Um, so the chief uh, there taught me as much as I know about that as anyone. Can can you say a little bit more about that? I mean, it, it's how I imagine there's this implication that we often get stuck in a more kind of shallow kind of listening that's maybe more instrumental or less motivated by trying to really understand someone's perspective without forcing it to be adapted to your own. Is that kind of what the kind of thing that you mean? Uh, yeah, exactly. And I mean, I mean, we talk about this all the time in, in research, we talk about, we talk about rigor, right? We talk about uh, uh, being thorough, we talk about being thorough in our analysis. Um, you know, we talk about, uh, you know, in quantitative, we might talk about um, uh, having a, a, a representative sample in, in qualitative, we might talk about, uh, you know, saturation and understanding mm -hmm. all, all possible perspectives uh, across, you know, across the population that we're studying, right, which may be just one small group, or it may be a, a broader group. Um, but the, 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 the per, there's, there's a couple of particular moments that, uh, that drove this point home for me. One, one was actually a conversation that I had with a uh, uh, previous chief of the community, which is uh, Chief uh, Felix Lockhart, and he he told me about how like how he governed the community and how he made decisions. Um, and um, you know, I guess you know what he what he shared with me. He said, you know, the the way that I made decisions is that if I had a decision to make, I would set myself a, a timeline of two weeks, and then I would spend the next two weeks walking around the community. Uh, talking to everybody that I could and asking for as many different perspectives on the problem as, as I could. And only after those two weeks were up, when I, when I, you know, had um, heard everybody's perspective, would I, would I arrive at a decision? Um, and, and, you know, that was actually something that impressed me quite a lot about Dene culture is that in, in Dene culture, they, they really believe strongly uh, in making sure that everyone's voice is heard. Uh, mm -hmm. and in taking the time that is required to make sure everybody's voice is heard. Um, and so after I would interview somebody with one perspective or opinion, they would often say, but you need to also go talk to this person because they have the, a different perspective on this than me. And you need to make sure that you hear what they have to say, which I thought was, was, was just, uh, you know, fantastic fantastic because they they always talk about in snowball sampling right for uh for qualitative interviews that the a risk is that you're going to get one perspective right. i didn't have that problem there <laughs> because they always told me i should go talk to both people that had the same opinion and people that would have totally and completely different opinions i mean in my experience that's so unusual as to be unheard of yeah i, I don't i don't know if it is i think it's probably unusual in our current political climate in the mm. places where we live and probably more so in the, the in the united states than almost anywhere that i know honestly yeah the polarization is just really really strong there and and people are not uh I, the pandemic i think has probably made it worse because people haven't had the opportunity to interface as much with people mm -hmm. that are not like them um yeah, right that's that's i think a 
sign of a healthy democracy, but that's a side conversation. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, to also cheat ahead a little bit, Nathan, because I also we were we also want to talk about conservation, social science, and a bit about methods. Do you 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 already kind of got us down that path a little bit when you were talking about these different methods and talking about deep listening. Do you think this idea of deep listening, do you view it also as a research method? And does that make sense to say that? Yeah, I would say, I would say that it is. It, it, to me, it's also just a guiding philosophy for, for what I do. Um, mm-hmm. uh, it's, it's just something that I ha- have come to, come to believe in, um, right? You know, I think, um, you know, doing social science work and good social science work is hard. Um, uh, you know, it's, you, uh, you, ha- you might do hundreds of surveys you might do, you know, hours and hours and hours of interviews. It's repetitive. Um, the analysis, if you're going to be thorough about it and proper about it, uh, you know, there's moments when you can get kind of bored with the, with the process. And so to me, you have to, there has to be a good reason uh, behind what we do to, you Mm -hmm. know, to continue to believe in it. Why do I do this? Why do I document these stories? Why do I document, you know, ask these questions about people's realities and their lives and their connections to the, to the land or to nature or, or, or about governance or other sorts of things. And to me, to me, the, you know, deep listening and accurate representation of other people's lived realities is, is one of the, one of the big reasons that I do it. Um, but you could think of it as a, as a, as a research method as well, I guess, um, mm. probably, probably even more so for qualitative researchers. I think that's uh, you know, probably an, a, a, an easy, easily applied idea, sure. um, but I think it, it, it goes to quantitative research as well, in my opinion. Yeah. All right. So I, can you, can you, Tell me about the next steps then. What, what happened next for you? And yeah, so, so uh, the next steps uh, went something like this. Uh, uh, my wife was pregnant during my master's degree. Um, and I had this really strong feeling uh, right from the beginning that uh, there was two of them. Uh, but uh, everybody else said, no, there's not, there's not two of them, the doctor, the midwife, everyone. Uh, and, uh, then, you know, when we went for the ultrasound, uh, you know, we said, well, we don't really want to know what gender the, the kid is. We want it to be a surprise. Mm. <laughs> and the ultrasound technician said to us, well, do you want to know how many there are? <laughs> right. So that was the moment when we decided we did want to know both the gender and how many there were. <laughs> but, uh, so, so, uh, um, uh, you know, the impending birth of my twins changed my trajectory during my master's a little bit. It meant I got to the field pretty much immediately and, and spent my time up there. Um, uh, my, my wife came to visit in the field too, actually, and the, the community members uh, loved that. And she opened actually doors to different people that I would never have talked to just because she was there and she was mm. pregnant. And, uh, and the, 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 <laughs> the women, the women would uh, tell stories even after she left about how much caribou she ate, <laughs> nice. which, was, which was really, was really quite funny. You remember how much your wife ate? <laughs> that was pretty funny. Um, so, um, yeah, she was, uh, growing twins. Um, so, you know, in 2008, I was, uh, back at Lakehead, uh, writing up my master's degree. And, um, and, uh, I had, uh, uh, young twins. I was, you know, waking up, they were born 
uh, early, of course, and underweight. And uh, I was waking up like, you know, 10 times a night and then trying to write my, my master's degree during the day. Uh, you know, the first half a year, you know, I was lucky if I got a few hours in uh, a, a day just because it was just so busy with the with the young twins and I wasn't sleeping that much. And and then, you know, that was, uh, you know, the second half of the year, I decided I was going to work a little bit harder. Um, but that was also in 2008. And uh, in 2008, the market crashed. And uh, I had a lot of friends who were out of work. I had friends that were out of work for uh, half a year or more and searching for jobs and not finding them. Yeah. Um, and so I, you know, I scanned the horizon in the middle of, t- of the of the winter there, uh, the, the cusp of 2008 to 2009. And I thought, wow, what am I going to do this coming year? You know, like I'm going to come out of a master's degree. I'm going to need some work. I don't have any work. I've got a young and growing family. I want to spend some time with my family. What, what is the best thing that I could do with my life at this point? And uh, so I decided uh, that probably doing a PhD was one of the best ideas because it would be the most flexible uh, in terms of schedule. And it would allow me to flex my schedule around my family needs um, and uh, there was still funding in the coffers for uh, scholarships at that point, whereas there wasn't necessarily jobs. Um, so usually scholarships go down about two years after a funding after a budgetary crash. Um, so I applied for uh, PhDs, got offered a bunch of different uh, possibilities, and uh, went for a, a human environment geography degree at the University of Victoria. Of course, you know the the opportunity. Also was interesting. I was working with uh, Phil Dearden at the University of Victoria. He works in Southeast Asia on um, marine protected areas and uh, with uh, coastal communities there. And so that was an interesting opportunity for me. Um, I didn't just choose it because of uh, because of the market crash. I thought, you know, there's still a need to find a, a, an interesting program. But but honestly, you know, even after a year. Um, uh, I bought a house in Victoria that first year. And uh, at the end of that year, I'd applied for a whole bunch of scholarships. I only got a one year entry fellowship and I didn't have anything after the first year. And at the end of that first year, I was like, I don't know if I can keep going with this. I don't, I don't know if I can survive uh, uh, financially. Uh, and I don't know if I'm going to make it. And then uh, fortunately that was the year where after four tries, I got my uh, social science and humanities research council fellowship and I got the Trudeau um, uh, uh, doctoral fellowship, which is uh, one of the kind of top um, fellowships for humanities and social sciences in Canada. And uh, that was the moment where I was kind of breathed my first sigh of relief and went, okay, I can do this Um, and uh, moved to Thailand, researched uh, coastal communities and marine protected areas uh, and uh, climate change adaptation and the relationship between all of those different aspects. Um, And that really has defined my course ever since. I mean, so one thing I want to reflect on a bit there, Nathan, is I mean, the process you just described, I feel like there's a tendency or a temptation when you look at someone else's website or CV or what have you, and you see some prizes and you think, oh, well, that's nice for them. That must've just, you get the sense that it kind of fell into someone's lap. And cause we're always kind of comparing our insides to other people's outsides. And you can forget that, you know, as you just said, often there are multiple failures that lead to the visible success. Yeah, I mean, the I didn't get a shirk scholarship through my. This is a common social science and humanities research council of Canada. It's a common 
kind of scholarship for undergraduates, master's degrees, and uh, PhD students. I did not get one until the second year of my PhD. So it took me many, many tries and many, many years. I took a look at my CV every year and I tried to improve on the gaps that I saw in it. Uh, and so it was a, I mean, the, and the Trudeau one was, uh, you know, uh, I, I also tried that multiple years before I got it. So it was definitely, it was, I mean, in my postdoc and I was a postdoc for, uh, for a number of years, uh, five years after, after finishing my PhD, uh, some, there was one year where I got to, you know, a low level fellowship the next year, I failed on almost every single application that I made. Uh, and there was only one that I got, uh, and that was non-monetary. <laughs> and so then the third year, I spent two months writing fellowship applications. And, the, and that one was a do or die situation because um, uh, by then we were moving to the States for my wife to do a midwifery program at Bastyr University down in Seattle. The mm -hmm. only way for me to make money was to make money uh, through a Canadian source because I did not have a visa in the United States. So I had to raise money through Canadian fellowships in order to be at an American university. So I applied for and got a Banting postdoctoral fellowship and a Fulbright Visiting Scholar Award. And that allowed me to continue my work for another two years. <laughs> so, but the year, if it was the year before, I would have not continued the academic path because <laughs> I didn't get any funding the year before. Right. Uh, yeah. Can you, can you talk a bit about what has kept you motivated to do all of this work to kind of keep it going through your PhD and after? Because you can imagine other people, you know, you can imagine someone facing these challenges and thinking it, it, you know, it is daunting. And a lot of other academics face, this is kind of like this situation of precarity in academia. And I know a lot of folks that are younger than us are, you know, struggling with just getting a PhD. And then, you, you know, and then you have this question, okay, now what? Yeah. Can you talk about your own kind of internal mental emotional process? Yeah. I mean, um, I think for, for me, like part of the thing that's, that's continued to drive me is, is just basic need. Um, uh, you know, there's, there's often been a, a need to, to make money. I've uh, had, um, you know, my needs have been different than lots of those around me as a PhD student. I had young kids. Uh, I had to make money. I had to make enough money to be able to look after myself and my family for most of that time. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, sometimes my partner was working and sometimes she wasn't. And so, um, you know, we, uh, when she was in school, I had to make enough uh, fellowships to for both of us as well when she was down at uh, Bastyr University. So some of it was was really just basic need. Um, but, uh, but uh, you know, an, another thing was just that I always had more ideas. I always had more ideas, like, like at every moment I had more ideas that I wanted to work on. Um, and, you know, that's been the, the, like the bane of my existence is, it's been, and it's like, it's, I, I guess I have a, a frustration relationship with that. And, uh, and it's also great, right? Like I have, I always have more ideas than I can ever work on. Uh, I have folders and folders full of uh, dead papers. I have brainstorms and uh, stuff in all sorts of uh, um, uh, journals. Um, and I don't always get money to work on the thing that I most want to work on. 
Um, so uh, sometimes I end up having to work on things that are are secondary or tertiary to my to my main interest, to the main, my main driver, the thing that I really want to work on. Mm-hmm. Um, but but sometimes you know working on the other project is the thing that makes me gives me money to work on that um, last thing. Uh, but I'll be but I'll be honest, you know, like it's been a it's 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 also been a struggle, right? It's been a struggle to to keep raising money to keep in the academic path um, to uh, to be able to uh, do those projects that I really want to do rather than uh, the ones that um, uh, that are popular, right? Because a lot of really popular ideas get funded rather than uh, ideas that are the most important. I often think, I think there's, you can have really, really important ideas that get very neglected and don't get any funding and you can have really popular ideas. Um, uh, yeah. And sometimes, you know, there's been moments where I've thought, oh man, maybe I, maybe I didn't choose the right path. Maybe I didn't choose the right path to continue doing this, to continue to, to push forward on these ideas. Um, you know, uh, academia can be a bit of a solo path, a, a bit of a solo journey. Um, and I'm, uh, I'm a collaborator at, at heart. Uh, I like to uh, work with people. I like to bring people together around ideas. Uh, I like to uh, think uh, across the theory um, practice divide uh, uh, in ways that is not always encouraged uh, in, in mm-hmm. academia. You know, I've had people say things to me like, oh, I see what you're good at doing. Uh, you're you're good at, at at translating the the you know the real social science theory uh, into into practical advice, <laughs> right? <laughs> which which I think was meant as a compliment, but it kind of sounded like a like an academic insult to me. <laughs> mm-hmm. So there's yeah. So there, I'll, I'll be honest. Like there's been there's definitely been a struggle at times over over the path, and um, and you know I didn't land the easy academic job, also. Um, I have had several offers, um, but for a variety of different reasons, they, they weren't really going to work out. You know, I got offered one uh, just a, a couple of months after the pandemic began, for example, and that was just an impossible time for myself and my family to move. So, you know, the, 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 the path has not been straightforward, but um, there's been obviously rewards along the way, and I've uh, managed to continue to raise funds to work on enough ideas that I'm passionate about uh, to keep the work interesting um and uh you know and still there's more ideas in my brain that i want to work on yeah i mean i think that that's to me that's always been a sign of someone who can can make it as a kind of independent academic as if you if you've got these ideas kind of bubbling up and your brain's just kind of always kind of glomming onto things and building new things off of the things that you've glommed onto etc um to me, that's always been like a good sign when I see someone who's like thinking about academia. It's like, okay, if, if, if that's the way your brain's kind of working, then like that's, that's a lot of it. Yeah. Well, and, and I mean, yeah, that I think also, you know, we have to start thinking a little bit about academia in a different way too in, in this time. You know, I, 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 sometimes, I sometimes wonder uh, about academia, whether or not it's going to be relevant in the future. <laughs> I sometimes wonder whether whether it can move fast enough, whether it can keep up with the changing times, right? If you think about uh, you know the speed of data and the speed of uh, uh, you know what's happening in in uh, the private sector and uh, uh, it, you know with uh, uh, 
tech firms and all that and just just how fast they're moving they're just moving i feel like they're moving a lot a lot faster than 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 academia is mm-hmm. and i think uh you know to me there's there's actually something to be learned from uh the nature of of these other industries and also from the the gig economy right uh i think um you know, we've, we've got this new kind of world where people are having to take on multiple different jobs at the same time and uh, to be entrepreneurial and to be uh, kind of fluid in their, in, in what they do and what they work on. And, and to me, I've kind of watched that. And, and because I haven't landed the classic academic job, I have very much ended up in a situation that's more like, uh, (laughs) you know, uh, somebody who works within the gig economy. Um, at this point, um, I work as an independent consultant, uh, you know, uh, and I'm a specialist in the human dimensions of, uh, of uh, conservation, of marine protected areas, of fisheries, climate change adaptation, and the blue economy. So basically, the human dimensions is my, is my specialty area. But I work mm-hmm. for a variety of philanthropic organizations and governments and non-governmental organizations and uh, alongside universities as well. Uh, on, on research projects, helping them with research design, or sometimes just writing stuff up later, uh, at later stages in the research. Um, yeah, and so, you know, that's, I think, yeah, having multiple ideas and having multiple projects and being pitching those ideas all the time is something that I've got accustomed to and used to. Um, and, uh, and, you know, the having a gig economy sort of philosophy about what I do is, has enabled me to kind of move, continue to move that work forward. Mm. Yeah, I mean, I certainly certainly resonates with me when you say that you wonder about academia. Sometimes I think I wonder about it more than sometimes. But I mean, a response might be though, Nathan. So I've I've mentioned this book a lot on this podcast, and I enjoyed reading most of it, called "The Slow Professor" by Maggie Berg and Barbara Sieber. That kind of argues the opposite, saying that we actually need to slow down. That when someone like Mark Zuckerberg says "move fast and break things," that that's the opposite of what we need to do. And there's this critique in there somewhere about the specter of the capitalist university mm-hmm. deciding that it needs to be more like everything else and that we're losing, you know, list your keywords about academic freedom and the ability to think, et cetera. I'm already thinking of a response to this, which is, okay, maybe this is nice for these privileged professors who can slow down. Mm. Um, but I'm wondering your thoughts about that. Is there, is there a threat to, cause you, you said this earlier in this interview, right? There's this, well, you talked at least about the distinction between, well, I'll put it in these terms, knowing how to do, do, do something and knowing why you're doing it. Mm-hmm. And I think that's really important. And I, and I worry that if we start to move faster, that we forget about that second question and all we worry about is, okay, can we do this? And certainly when I think about like the tech economy, I think that this question should be asked more. We, we, we kind of fetishize scale. Not that I think we don't fetishize our own kind of scale in academics. We just think about publications and citations and we don't think about why. We just think about how we get more of those. We don't necessarily think about why. So I think academia actually already has some of these challenges. But do you, does any of that kind of critique concern you if we're thinking about academia and its ability to keep up? Like, sh- should it try to keep up or is that like part of the nature of academia is that it also should be somewhat buffered from that? 
Yeah, no, that's a that's a good a good uh, rebuttal and a good question. Um, I mean, t- for for me personally, I think the the you know the the uh, the gig economy approach has been necessary uh, as a as a survival uh, right. mechanism, both both within um, you know the academic system. Um, but also as I transition beyond the academic system. So, um, you know, here in Canada, um, the, the funding that's provided to postdocs, for example, I think is honestly verging on, on criminal. So the, 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 you know, postdocs can be as low as $40,000 a year Canadian, which is about 30,000 us a year, 30,000 for a postdoc for a year. Yeah. Yeah. Some postdocs uh, do not get provided with uh, medical or benefits uh, or any sort of employment protection at their universities. Um, and yet um, they're treated and they're taxed on that $30,000 a year, right? That 30,000 US, 40,000 Canadian. Um, and um, some are treated like they're employees of somebody, whereas they're supposed to be an independent fellow doing their own project. Um, and they're asked to do uh, a lot of free, free labor. Um, and so, you know, for me, uh, I had to take on consulting gigs on the side of my postdocs uh, in order to make enough money to survive. Like that was just a, a reality of the of the scenario. Um, and so, you know, for a for a if a professor told me to slow down, <laughs> I I would feel you know like fantastic. Pay me more, right? I would love to be able to slow down. I would love to be able to take the time to just. Uh, um, you know, do do slow scholarship over, mm-hmm. over a long period of time, but that's just not that's not a reality that a lot of postdocs can. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, their their gigs are short. Uh, they have to raise the next funds. They don't necessarily have any medical or benefits. All of those sorts of things. Um, so, so to me, it, the gig philosophy and, and economy that I was talking about is partially just a survival thing, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, but it, but I've also realized that it does have some benefits. Right. It has some benefits in um, that uh, you have to be uh, collaborative. You have to be creative in your uh, and strategic in your thinking uh, about, you know, current projects and future projects, uh, all of those sorts of things. And, uh, you know, and sometimes you uh, are creative in ways like um, uh, you take proposals that you wrote uh, and you write them up into a paper. Uh, right. So I had a project that I pitched to a whole bunch of funders for, uh, for a while. And it was on, uh, um, uh, justice and equity and inclusion issues in the ocean. Uh, and I pitched it to a bunch of funders and I got rejected again and again and again. Uh, and I also, um, uh, was asked to rewrite it a number of times for one funder, uh, <laughs> to, to justify it better and better and better. And eventually I was, I was, uh, I was basically ghosted. I never heard back from them. Uh, and, uh, and so, so I just, you know, in a moment of annoyance or a week of annoyance, I wrote it up into a paper, uh, and, uh, and published it as navigating a just and inclusive path to sustainable oceans. And in fact, that, that moment of frustration, uh, has turned into a whole trajectory of work for me. Um, mm-hmm. so, so I think the, the gig philosophy is like partially has bred some creativity, has led me to do things that I never would have done. Uh, and in and in different ways, and to be strategic in different ways, and to collaborate in different ways, um, and I think that has kept my work uh, quite relevant. Uh, are there moments where I would love to take months and months and months and read books and uh, you know and run interviews? Well, I still do get some projects where I'm able to run interviews across a number of months and stuff like that. But uh, um, 
yeah, I would love to. I would love to do that. And I do think that slow scholarship has merit as well. I think the the slowness that's required to think deeply, to engage deeply with thinking. Um, I often see people continuing to work constantly without ever taking a pause, uh, you know, a step away from their computer and go sit at a cafe with a book and just write some ideas down and make some doodles and all of those sorts of things. And I personally still try to work that into my practice. Uh, you'll notice there's a whiteboard behind me because you can see me, the people on the call uh, on the on the podcast can't, but there's a whiteboard behind me, you know, this in my notebook in front of me is uh, dirty, dirty sketches that nobody else can understand but me. Uh, and, uh, you know, that's a, that's a constant part of my practice is, is making sure that I step away and, and take the time to think, uh, and so that I'm not just doing. Yeah. Um, I want to just return briefly to your time at Victoria. Did, I assume that's when you met Natalie Ban, who's been a professor there for a while, or did you meet her before then? Actually, I met her in the year after I finished my PhD. Um, oh, so okay. Yeah. So I was still, um, uh, by that point I had moved on to my first postdoc, uh, which mm -hmm. was, uh, through the university of British Columbia. Um, and it was as a shirk postdoctoral fellow. Uh, this is a specific case in point. I was, uh, being paid $38,500 Canadian a year as a, as a shirk postdoctoral fellow. Um, that when I did the math, uh, that was not enough uh, money to enable me to move to Vancouver to live. Uh, so I could not afford to live in Vancouver on that salary. So I stayed in Victoria mm. uh, and uh, continued to work out of the University of Victoria and the Center for Global Studies there, uh, even though I was technically a, a postdoc at the University of British Columbia. So I rode my bike all the way from Victoria to Vancouver one day every week. I would, I would uh, ride my bike from Victoria, get on the ferry and bring it across and then, and then ride back. So Natalie and I, I was fortunate she got hired into the School of Environmental Studies. Uh, yeah, we immediately struck up a, uh, you know, a, a good collegial relationship around some different ideas around marine protected areas and coastal community adaptation and uh, have started writing some, uh, some papers together then and continue to work together now. Yeah, I interviewed for the podcast last year at some point, almost a year ago, it seems like. Um, okay, Nathan, can you talk to me a bit about the consultant work and specifically some projects that have stood out to you that have been maybe more gratifying than others, something, something that you feel like you were also able to learn from or felt like you were doing some good? Yeah. So over the years, I've done consulting projects for a number of different organizations. I've worked with, um, uh, you know, Parks Canada, Environment Canada. I've worked with, uh, um, you know, the Marine Protected Area Technical Team on the coast of British Columbia. I've worked with um, uh, the Nature Conservancy and uh, Comunidad y Biodiversidad in Mexico on bringing social and governance considerations into marine planning processes. Uh, completed a recent project for the Smithsonian Institution on bringing social science into their working lands and seascapes initiative. Um, uh, and uh, yes, have some some other other projects on the go. Uh, another recent one was working with the Blue Nature Alliance on uh, helping them to articulate a social code of conduct for their marine conservation work. Mm -hmm. um, now, and yeah, another one for Walton family recently on uh, some, uh, tracking the human well-being impacts of their fisheries program. So if you you know if you kind of start to just, you know, 
think about those different projects that I've just talked about, one thing that you'll notice is they're all about the human dimensions of uh, marine conservation or fisheries or environmental management in some way. And, you know, the themes that start to cut across them are, are themes related to um, uh, human well-being and governance and culture um, and social equity. Um, and, and, you know, if you think about those themes of all of those consultancies, you'll also think about the themes of all of my academic work over the years, and you'll notice that they actually come together quite nicely. Mm -hmm. um, and so, you know, in the end, for me, what has happened is that I've developed a, an area of specialization uh, through uh, my academic work that has been something that people have noticed um, both inside and outside of, of, of academia. And because they've noticed that, I'm often approached by organizations or individuals who know of my work and asked to do uh, work on these topics. So it's not something, it's not, I haven't had to do as much looking around for work as, as some consultants do. Uh, often it's organizations reaching out to me and asking me to work on those topics. Um, and, and I think for me, that means that, you know, I am working on things that I find really valuable and things that I, that I really care about, um, you know. Um, and, and another point just on the bridging of the academic and the, and the consulting work is that um, uh, one thing that I've started to encourage my clients to think about is that if I spend, you know, hundred days working on a project or 200 days working on a project and then I produce uh, an internal guidance document or, or product that's only for internal consumption of that organization um, that it might have very limited impact on the field and in the real uh, world. Uh, whereas if they add some additional time to write what we've learned through that process, through the review process, through the research that we do. If we take that additional time and write it up into an externally facing um, publication, which might be a guidance document that's externally facing, or it might be an academic publication, that that's going to have more uh, impact in the broader field. Mm. So just a quick example of that is uh, advancing social equity in and through marine conservation, a publication that I worked on last year. Um, that was a, an extension of a contract for the Blue Nature Alliance, where we started with the internal code of conduct, and then we continued the process through to this externally facing publication that, uh, that provides provide some, some thinking about what it means to do conservation in a more socially equitable way. Okay. I mean, that seems really important, actually, in terms of kind of squaring the circle of having academic impact, but co combining it with kind of real world impact. So, so speaking of this bridge a bit more, Nathan, can you, um, oh, I just lost my train of thought. Um, sorry, let me look at my notes. Sure. Well, why don't I just make one point on that uh, sure. while, you're, while you're thinking about the next question, which is just, I, 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 there's, there's, there's this idea that we have and that we talk about a lot of co-production mm -hmm. um, these, these days. And um, I think it's an interesting one, right? Co-producing knowledge or co-producing practice. Um, actually, you know, as somebody who worked previously as a practitioner, um, you know, that's often what we did. <laughs> is, mm -hmm. is we would work with communities and we co-produce knowledge and then we co-produce practice with those communities. Um, and, uh, you know, academics, I think, are actually in 
in some ways, one of the most difficult positions in order to be able to actually co-produce knowledge uh, properly, because they're not often deeply integrated with communities, with uh, policymakers, with NGOs. Um, and in some interesting sort of way, I found that through this uh, this bridging of the of the you know the consulting roles and academic outputs and publications, that I feel actually much closer to co-producing knowledge uh, than perhaps I ever have. Um, you know, it comes with drawbacks and, uh, and, and it changes the nature of the exercise to some extent, um, but, I, but it is really co-producing knowledge with those organizations and often with a, you know, the, the, if you use the advancing social equity and through marine conservation as an example, that involved a bunch of academics uh, and a bunch of practitioners in the co-authorship uh, of this paper, right, in a, mm. in a very different ways. And you don't see very many academic papers that have um, that many practitioners alongside academics on publications. You often just see the academics, even when they claim to be co-producing knowledge. So, Yeah, I think that's really interesting, Nathan. I've, I've thought about this specific topic actually before, this idea that um, as academics, we talk about a lot of concepts that we don't directly live through or engage with ourselves and co-production being one of them. Mm -hmm. Um, and there's a lot of concepts like this, right? Like adaptive co-management, all these like governance ideas that are kind of inherently normative or prescriptive. And there's, I don't want to say there's a disregard for it, but there's, there's not a lot of engagement with the idea that one way to learn about these concepts and actually a very valuable way is to be an actor in the world in a system that's trying to enact these concepts. Yeah, exactly. And, and, you know, um, I often, I often uh, kind of poke fun at academics and researchers just by by kind of saying, you know, it's actually a lot harder to do than it is to to to, to do research. <laughs> I totally agree. Yeah, I mean, yeah. I, this has been a challenge. I've, I mean, I've I've struggled with this in academic writing. Mm -hmm. There's so many like articles you can find with this kind of like flowery language that reads so beautiful, and you think for like five seconds, you think, oh well, why haven't we solved all the world's problems if we have this beautiful article? Well, about adaptive co-management and triple loop learning and whatever, pick your thing. I don't mean to like pick on those ideas. Mm -hmm. And it's because the implementation is not easier than the intellectualization. No. Often it's the hardest part and we intellectualize almost to avoid dealing with implementation. Sometimes it feels like. Yeah. And, and I mean, we do need aspirational thinking in the world, right? We, we do need that. I think it's, yes. it's important to, I think it's important to, you know, think ahead in order to, try to improve our practice. Um, mm -hmm. you know, I think, um, you know, having good, uh, good advice, having good frameworks, having good models, um, you know, having thought through what, what that looks like is always instructive. And, you know, most, most practitioners I know would love more time to be able to read that stuff, mm -hmm. right? Because they're, they're, they're just so deep in the struggle of, of doing and trying to do their, you know, their job the best that they can with all the constraints that come with that job, that they're not necessarily able to read those papers that would help them to improve their practice. Sure. Um, so, you know, I think co-production actually has a, can help in that way too, 
if uh, you know you're able to do it in a way that is you know genuine and uh, and and efficient enough, efficient enough on their time, right? Academics, uh, you know, back to the slow scholarship. Academics often do have more time to be able to think through these things, uh, but if they're willing to work alongside practitioners and people who are in the place of doing, actually, that team and what can be produced can be both you know maybe less aspirational and more grounded from an academic perspective, and also become more useful. And and help to guide and, and change practice in the real world. Mm. Okay, so I have a new question, but I want to get back to the one that I couldn't think of a few minutes ago, which is about um, partly about assumptions. So you've written in your academic work, Nathan, about these kind of what I think of now as kind of governance modalities, right? So protected areas, community-based natural resource management, these kind of broad categories of governance and conservation. And there's been this long discourse, which I'm sure you're aware of, about panacea thinking in the commons field and related fields, whereby we assume that often at the organizational level, that a particular modality or approach is uh, optimal, and we specialize in that approach and to, to the potential, un, you know, at the expense of thinking about maybe also about implementation, but also about alternatives, about issues of equity, et cetera. Mm -hmm. In your work, either in your academic work or in your applied work or in the bridge between them, have you, en have you engaged with um, assumptions maybe that you're making, but you know, I'm, I'm mostly thinking about other, that other people are making about what is supposedly a preferred approach or an optimal approach based on assumptions that are often not uh, supported by actual work on the ground. So, you know, I'm thinking in particular of your work, looking at marine protected areas and the importance of social equity. I think, you know, equity is often a concern that's dismissed, it feels like when we're thinking about some so-called optimal approach to governance. Mm -hmm. So is that something you've experienced in your, in your work and in, in trying to bridge this gap between academics and, and applied work yeah maybe just can you just repeat the very last like the essence of the question uh, yeah. again for me and I'll, I'll kind of touch on a few of the other points that you made there have you encountered assumptions in your work about a so-called optimal approach to governance that disregards things like power equity or other important factors on the ground because i think there's a strong discourse in the field, which is appropriate that we need to move beyond that, but it's also easy to fall into that trap. And I am maybe also projecting a bit here, Nathan, and that I, I worry that in the applied space, there's maybe more of a temptation to find a, you know, a more optimal approach and upscale yourself towards that. Right. I don't know if that's fair. Sure. So, so I just want to start with the, the, your use of governance modalities a, a little bit here and, and just clarify for me what I think of as the difference between governance and management. Mm. Um, so, so for me, I kind of, I kind of separate out governance from management. And I actually think that um, intellectually it can be useful to, to, to think about them a little bit differently. To me, governance is, you know, the institutions and structures and processes that um, uh, lead to, um, you know, decision-making, uh, 
related to the environment um, that determine what types of actions are taken um, and ultimately that do influence what types of outcomes emerge. I, I think of management more as the um, the application, the applied application of governance. Um, so it's the resources, plans, and actions that are taken on the ground. Um, so much more, um, uh, you know, much more specific. And 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 I think it's useful to think about them differently um, for a variety of different reasons. One is, um, you know, I just think it's really important to separate out process considerations from, uh, you know, actual on the ground substantive actions. Um, and I think it's just useful intellectually to keep them a little bit, a, a little bit separate. It, it's, it's helpful. Um, uh, yeah. And then the other reason is because I feel like um, often people that are talking about management often use the word governance, but fail to consider all of those other uh, decision-making processes or, or considerations of power or, or equity or, or even the, the role of national policy in what happens on the ground in terms of management action. Mm. I could go on and on about man uh, management and governance, but I, I don't want to get too stuck down there. So, so I would, I would, then come to um, marine protected area as as one type of management action. Um, so there's you know a lot of different types of management actions that can be taken to uh, conserve, uh, protect, and or sustainably use the marine environments. Um, you know, you might call those a suite of different environmental stewardship uh, initiatives. You might call them a type of different types of management actions. There's different ways that you could also label those. Um, but I think of marine protected area more as being an on the ground action. It's something that we do that's very specific on the, on the ground. And then you could, you know, you could think about the governance of that marine protected area as pertaining to the way that decisions are, are made within that marine protected area. Um, who has decision-making power in that uh, marine protected area? Is there a, a board structure that involves local and indigenous communities um, as is done in some places, or is it 100% decided in a top-down manner uh, by, uh, by a centralized governance authority um, so to the question of panaceas um, uh, and and assumptions um, you know again there's a whole suite of different actions that could be taken in the marine environment so you could do marine protected areas you could do indigenous and community conserved areas you could do a marine territory of life uh, you could do um, uh, you know, more uh, species-based management, or you could manage uh, habitats. Um, you could manage the amount that's taken of species or the types of gears that are, that are used for that species. Um, you know, there's just, just a whole, you know, there's just a plethora of different types of management actions that are taken on the ground. And, you know, for every single one of those um, management actions, uh, they can, those management actions can be implemented through different uh, uh, types of governance uh, or uh, different types of processes, right? So they can be 100% top down, they can be 100% inclusive, uh, they can be, um, yeah, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so the question of, you know, do we have panaceas in the marine environment that we like to glom onto um, and apply more than others? I would say, uh, yes, absolutely. 
<laughs> I would say there's a there's a you know there's a number of different panaceas that we glom onto. Uh, marine protected areas is one of those uh, panaceas that we glom onto. Uh, maximum sustainable yield in fisheries was kind of a you know a, an idea a concept <laughs> that that, uh, that we glommed onto. Individual transferable quotas uh, is another sort of panacea that we that we that we glommed onto as because we thought that. Um, you know, if we, that uh, humans are rational actors and, <laughs> and because they're rational actors, if we can, you know, provide them with uh, 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 property, uh, you know, and of course, you know, individual transferable quotas is an incomplete form of property, but if we can provide them with that property, they're going to be motivated to, uh, to conserve the resource because the property belongs to them. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, so we have all sorts of panaceas that we glom onto all the time in the marine environment, uh, and that we don't uh, that we don't question. In in my mind, I think uh, um, you know the idea of uh, having humility in environmental policy. I think this is something that Eleanor Ostrom talked about. Actually, is this idea of uh, you know that all all environmental policy should policies should be viewed as experiments. Um, you know, and that requires us to have some some sort of humility about um, about what it is we're doing, and to 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 be able to adaptively manage those those things. And then another one is um, I, to me, you know, this idea of using our best available knowledge to choose the policy, um, right? So there's there's beforehand, and then there's afterwards. So afterwards, it's having some humility you know, adaptively managing, changing the tool, changing the approach, changing the rules, changing the decision-making process, all of that sort of stuff. Uh, but ahead of time, I mean, I, with marine protected areas, I think, um, uh, you know, it's, they're a tool that's useful for some things and they're not useful for other things. So marine protected areas are useful for protecting critical life stages of species. Uh, you know, they're a tool uh, that's useful for uh, removing potentially destructive activities from an area uh, that's important for certain things. So you can think of, uh, you know, beluga whale calving grounds in, in Northern Canada. Is that an area where marine protected area is, is useful? I would say yes, for two reasons. Number one, it protects a critical life piece, uh, stage. And number two, um, it makes sure that for the long term, uh, that other destructive activities are not going to be happening in that area, right? You can maybe limit other activities that, uh, that might uh, impact on what's happening in that area. They're also good for uh, protecting habitats and allowing habitats to regenerate and come back. Um, so that's another use for them. Um, they're useful for, uh, you know, um, certain types of, uh, of benthic species um uh, as well so they're uh, useful for those things but they're not useful for other things they're not useful for highly mobile species um unless uh unless it's a highly mobile species that where a critical life stage is important in that area mm -hmm. um, and then simultaneously you know on the social side they're also uh not necessarily 100 percent useful in all social scenarios um so if you have a social scenario where you have um, you know, hundreds of thousands of small scale fishers, <laughs> then, then it might not be the easiest tool to implement because you're going to be in, in, you know, impacting people's lives and their livelihoods in a, in a very real way. Or are they a good tool to use in an area where you don't have adequate, um, uh, 
you know, governance capacity or management resources to be able to enforce the marine protected area. Uh, is that is that fair? Is that fair to be even able to put that in place if you can't provide enough funding to do the management that's necessary for the area? Right. Um, or, or is that an or is that an unfair proposition to impose a marine protected area in that in that location? So to me, there's there's thinking forward and then there's thinking back in the, in this in this realm. And I think yeah, I think we we suffer from panaceas. Uh, uh, the the one challenge though I do think is that you know in order to doing conservation environmental management does cost money. It takes money, it takes resources. And sometimes to raise those money and resources, we do need narratives and narratives, narratives can be powerful tools to help us raise money and resources to be able to move the, try to move the bar in environmental management and in the marine environment. Well, it reminds me of you mentioning earlier on in this conversation, the indigenous community that you were working with needing certain quanti telling you that they need a certain quantitative data to represent themselves to external actors mm -hmm. to kind of tell a narrative that's legible to other people. Yeah. And that there's always that challenge of we want to understand in a more deep way what's happening here, but we also need to think about how what we're doing is made legible to other folks. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, and I just want to add one one last piece on the uh, difference between governance and management, which is actually from an equity perspective, I actually think it's important to understand them differently as well. Um, because um, just to we'll use the example of marine protected areas, um, if you, you know, a lot of people have 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 focused on on procedural aspects of equity uh, in environmental management and marine protected areas and fisheries, etc. But Procedural aspects means, you know, uh, participation and inclusion and other aspects of good governance, right, like transparency and accountability mechanisms. But that says nothing about who gets to manage the resource on the ground, who has leadership over it, and who has the authority over that area and who has the capacity to do it. So it's, it's quite different to just consult with a group or include a group in decision making processes versus providing them with the necessary funds to augment what is often their inherent capacity. So groups often have really strong inherent capacity to do the management, to make the decisions themselves. They, they might even, you know, you think about um, indigenous communities on the West coast of Canada, they often have their own rules uh, and their own governance structures and, and they have huge capacity and, and they're present. They live right there. They know the place and the resources. Um, mm -hmm. Not providing funding to, to them to be able to carry out the work is also an important aspect of, of management equity that to me is separate from, from governance or procedural considerations. Okay. I mean, it sounds, to try to make a connection here, earlier when you were talking about the difficult, when you said it's unfair to implement a protected area without the actual resources, to me that reminded me of the paper park narrative right where we implement a park or a reserve but it's only really there on paper in someone's office and this, it, it, this sounds kind of like a concern about what we could call paper participation where it's only participation on paper and not in fact because you haven't thought about capacity yeah yeah that's a that's a good good connection for sure mm. um so nathan yeah. i want to make sure yeah go ahead oh i mean and just as a as an example i mean you could think of a small nationally established marine protected area that has very little capacity to be operated versus, uh, you know, a locally managed marine area or, um, you know, an indigenous protected and conserved area, uh, just to kind of give some 
mm-hmm. real examples for what that would look like. Mm-hmm. Um, I was about to go on to this next topic, which I still want to do, but you mentioned something that I can't let go of. So I'm going to ask okay. a follow-up. You mentioned when you talked about ITQs, I'm aware that the main critique of ITQs has been the alienability of the rights and the subsequent consolidation of rights and disenfranchisement of a lot of traditional actors. And in some circles that really, you know, so folks who like ITQs view alienability, the ability to sell something as the most complete version of property rights. That if you don't, if you can sell something, then actually your property rights are limited. And you kind of said the opposite. You said that this, this approach is incomplete itself. Could you explain what you meant by that? Yeah, it's possible I didn't speak absolutely correctly, but you know, I, I mean, here we kind of go to this idea of the the bundle of rights, right? Mm-hmm. That, it, that can be associated with property, right? You can have the 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 ability to uh, enter or access an area. You can have the ability to. Um, uh, you know, harvest resources from that area or extract resources from that area. You can have the the right to um, uh, manage that area. Uh, that's another right. Uh, you know, you can manage. I mean, you could even own an area, but still not have the right to manage it. Somebody else, mm-hmm. might, right? And you can have the ability to, uh, you know, to to um, alienate others from the resource. Mm-hmm. Um, and then you can also have the right to transfer yep. um, the, the, that right to, to someone else. Um, and I mean, obviously, <laughs> you know, we can think of lots of different scenarios where, where these, this different bundle of rights is, is not complete, right? Where mm-hmm. you don't have all of those rights. You can have some of those rights, but not other, but not other rights. Um, and I think, you know, ITQs as a, as a, as a system is, is an interesting one, right? It it often provides you the ability to, uh, not, not necessarily the ability to enter an area, but the ability to harvest. Uh, uh, so you may not be able to use all areas to harvest. Um, you have the, you don't necessarily have the ability to manage, right? Which is one of those assumptions of ITQs is that it will, it will motivate you to steward the resource because you own it. Um, and then uh, it does provide you with the ability to uh, transfer that right to someone else I'm not sure if it actually, does it provide you with the ability to alienate someone else from that? Oh, yeah. So I, I, from that area? Yeah, that's not what I meant by alienability. I think there's actually multiple ways that term is used. Yeah, so in, in the bundle of rights framework, yeah, alienability, alienation, yeah, means the, the right to stop other people from going into a place. I meant more alien, alienability in terms of being able to alienate the right from yourself it's transferability is what I meant in the in, in the terminology you were using transferability. Yeah. So maybe, so maybe, you know, maybe it's, I mean, it's obviously ITQs don't have all of those elements, um, but yeah. they do, but, but they do allow you to transfer it. And then, and then, you know, that leads to this ability to, or this consolidation that we've kind of were, that, you know, is the concern that you mentioned. Um, and, uh, yeah, I think the, the the big issue with um, you know, I mean, there's different forms of quota too, right? You can have a you can have community quota, 
you can have a communally held quota, you can establish, uh, you can create certain restrictions on quotas, uh, for example, uh, over who it can be transferred to and who it cannot be transferred to. Mm-hmm. Um, even, um, uh, you know, there's all sorts of restrictions that you can, or layers that you can add on top of this idea of a, of a, of a quota. And so the individual transferable quota is, um, you know, problematic in, in its individuality uh, and in the way that it can be uh, transferred with no restrictions, right? right? So the, the lack of restrictions uh, is, is part of the issue, you know? And so, you know, we could get deeply into discussions about, uh, uh, you know, whether or not, you know, the role of government in holding, in, in holding to account the long arm, arm of, the, of the market, but that's a, you know, a very long philosophical conversation. Totally, yeah. get into. But if you, if you change the rules on that quota to be, that it can only be transferred to active fishermen or fisherwomen, for example. That's one way of changing the the you know the calculus of uh, who can own it and whether or not they're going to have um, a, a rationale for managing the area. Uh, you can also make it so that uh, people can only own so many of them, uh, and that changes how many you know that changes the calculus around this. Uh, consolidation issue that we're having right where where anybody can buy up hundreds and hundreds of them as long as they have enough capital to be able to do so um Mm -hmm. uh, and or you can also you know say it can only belong to a group that lives uh proximal or to the resource so so you know you can can add an adjacency requirement um and that changes uh again you know who's going to be able to access resource and their uh, motivations for for stewarding that resource, for looking after that resource, uh, uh, change just because of the nature of their ownership over that resource. Right. That's okay. That last part is particularly helpful. Um, yeah. I mean, when, your point also, Nathan, about the the kind of absence of some management rights here makes sense to me. I, I had a colleague of mine refer to this kind of arrangement as almost like a Leviathan market, where it is a market in a certain type of rights, but it's a market under the control. I mean, it's, it's being actively governed by a centralized agency, at least centralized from the perspective of the users. So it's not this kind of necessarily free flowing market that is often imagined, mm-hmm. I suppose, mostly in textbooks. Um, okay. So we've been talking a while. I do want to make sure we talk about two final topics that relate to each other. One is this topic, this idea of conservation social science. Yeah. And the other one is this topic that you've mentioned a little bit, but essentially the idea of interdisciplinary research and collaboration, which you've obviously been engaged quite a bit in. And those topics relate to each other to me, at least insofar as the idea of a conservation social science to me represents already this idea of interdisciplinarity and insofar as it represents the idea that, okay, in order to actually effectively conserve it, there, we need more than one discipline here. We also need the social sciences. So could you talk a bit about your work that has tried to make the case for a conservation of social science or maybe many of them and how they can be, or maybe should be integrated into conservation science and practice? Yeah, and I mean, maybe I'll just go back to, you know, to, to Lutzelke for just a moment on this one. You know, 
I, I mean, what I learned in, in Lutz okay is, is that, uh, you know, a people's culture and people's values uh, can fundamentally alter the way that we imagine uh, a protected area, right? And, and you know, their, their pre-existing governance structures can also fundamentally alter the way that we set up decision-making bodies for uh, a protected area. Uh, and, you know, indeed they have, uh, because what's happened since then, so this park was originally proposed in 19, uh, I think it was 1969. That was the original proposal. I was there in 2010 and it still hadn't been created because they were still talking about it. Wow. Uh, but now that they've brought together an articulation of indigenous Lutzokate, Dene First Nation in particular, values and culture around what that park means and what that park can be. Uh, now that they've recognized indigenous rights to continue to harvest and manage caribou within that territory, and now that they've incorporated indigenous decision-making processes and structures into the preparation of that area, we do have an area that's called Thaidane Nene National Park, the land of our ancestors, right? So that to me is, you know, partially where I started to really realize how social science uh, and thinking socially about the world can fundamentally change what we do in conservation practice. And, you know, I've worked in a bunch of interdisciplinary departments, um, uh, including, um, you know, sustainability science program and uh, human environment geography program. Um, and in those places, yeah, there are both natural and social science. Uh, but then I've also spent a lot of time working with conservation biologists and fisheries scientists. Um, and, um, you know, the the way that they think about the world uh, and the way that they think about conservation is very, very much informed by their physical science basis, uh, right? It's, a, it's, it's informed by the, the number of fish in the sea. It's informed by the location of species or, and habitats. Um, it's, it, it's informed by, uh, you know, critical life stages and all of those sorts of things. And, and honestly, I, I actually find natural scientists to be some of the most beautiful thinkers in the world. I find their thinking and their passion to be poetic, right? If you, if you really want to hear poetry, uh, you know, if you're at a bar with somebody who studies monarch butterflies, ask them about monarch butterflies. And it is the most beautiful thing to hear them talk because they will get just really passionate and excited. So, I, so to me, I actually love hanging out with natural scientists and hearing their stories and the way that they think about the world. But what I find missing is when they take that uh, evidence that they think very deeply about through their science and they bring that to environmental decisions, I find it to be uh, um, uh, you know, incomplete. I find it to be incomplete knowledge. I find it, and I define this idea of, of evidence-based decision-making to also be problematic because I find that there's a bit more of a, an assumption that the evidence will make the decision. Uh, for you. And so mm. to me, you know, decisions in policy and management need to be evidence informed and they need to bring together all of the different types of evidence to understand that problem in that situation, uh, which requires, you know, social considerations and ecological considerations together and side by side. Um, yeah. And then, I mean, to, to, to dig specifically in on the social sci science side, I guess a number of years ago, um, I 
I, you know, I did a job interview um, at the San Diego Zoo Global uh, for a, a social science position, and they wanted somebody to develop a uh, world-leading program of social science research. Uh, and when I arrived there, I realized that their, their vision for a world-leading program of social science research was really about doing research on their educational programs and on their community-based conservation initiatives. And I thought, well, that doesn't really constitute a world-leading social science program. Uh, and they have a huge conservation science institute at the San Diego Zoo. They have a, a large amount of money and having a single social scientist uh, that's focused on two small issues did not to me really encapsulate the social science sciences and what they could contribute to conservation. So that is actually the first moment that got me thinking. And then a little while later, I was having a conversation with the, the, the uh, um, previous director of the Canadian Wildlife Federation. And he said, Similarly, he said, you know, we're really interested in the social sciences and what they can contribute to our decision making. And I said, okay, well, well, you know, what sorts of um, topics or what sorts of questions do you have that the social sciences might be able to answer? And, and his answer was, we don't know. We don't really know. And so I realized that there's just this kind of gap in knowledge about what the social sciences were, what they could offer, um, and, and what that meant to think in a really big picture way. What types of evidence could be provided? Uh, you know, how does economics differ from sociology, from psychology, from political ecology in the, uh, the insights that it can offer? And how do you get that through from the discipline into some sort of decision-making? And, and Furthermore, you know, is, is the only question that we can ask of social science from a conservation perspective uh, instrumental, right? Because that, that was the other thing that it felt to me was, like was being asked all the time was, was how do we use social science to help us to be able to achieve our predetermined aims? Mm -hmm. um, and that concerned me a lot. Um, and so I really just wanted to, you know, open this toolbox. So I asked the Canadian Wildlife Federation for some money for a working group and brought that together at the Society for Conservation Biology and kind of wrote a series of uh, papers that have been really well taken up. So Nathan, what's wrong with a purely instrumental approach and deciding, okay, here's our goals and how we want to reach it. I could see, I could think of someone, I could hear someone in my mind being like, oh, well, that, of course that's what we do. Yeah, I think I think sometimes an instrumental type question is the right question to ask. Uh, but there's many, many different questions that one can ask about the world, um, right? There's there's how questions, there's why questions, there's there's what questions. You know, there's descriptive, there's instrumental, mm -hmm. um, there's questions that are going to give you answers that are going to require you to think a lot uh, deeper, um, right? So even uh, the question of culture and conservation, right? What does a different cultural view of nature and connections to place and a species, what does that mean for what we do on the ground? It's not an instrumental question, that's a design question. Um, and so I just think that there's a whole bunch of different types of questions that can be asked. I, and I'm, I was just concerned that uh, for those with, uh, you know, training in natural sciences, but also just concerns about biodiversity and, and conservation, right? The, the, the instrumental rationale is, is, is very well-meaning, right? It's all about how do we achieve these really important conservation goals? 
and 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 that I think is important, right? How do we stop people from walking off the path so they stop trampling on these endangered species? Uh, you know, what is the messaging on the signs that we use in order to do that? I think that's an important question, but it's not the only question. Um, and I think there is just a, too much. There's there was and is still too much of that instrumental focus in social science as applied to uh, conservation environmental management problems. Okay. Yeah, I mean, you you mentioned in part of your response the fact that, of course, there are many social sciences and they're often quite different from each other. And I think one of the one of the something that I think can happen is this dynamic of outgroup homogeneity bias, right? Where each member of an in-group is aware of the diversity within that group, but we tend to homogenize the folks who are not in our group and say, oh, well, they're all, you know, like this. And so in this case, it's, it's folks who aren't social scientists saying, well, there's, there's social scientists and they're all kind of the same thing. Mm-hmm. And I think that's part of the challenge, right? Cause social scientists, uh, criticize each other as much as anyone, right? I mean, anthropologists and economists see the world pretty radically differently. And so I think part of the challenge here is, and this is what I I liked about the paper that you wrote on this, it was trying to kind of wrestle with that heterogeneity and what different subgroups of this incredibly broad idea of social science actually can and can, could bring to the table. Yeah, and, and I mean, yeah, there's, I mean, obviously there's a huge number of disciplines um, and I honestly think that one of the keys to good interdisciplinary work is good building blocks. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I'm, I'm a little bit concerned about this, this move to try to train everyone to be uh, completely interdisciplinary. I think it's, I think it's a, I think it's a, I think there's some people who are good bridging thinkers or good high level thinkers who are good facilitators and all of that sort of stuff and facilitators of knowledge. Um, And I think there's other people who are really good at uh, understanding uh, very specific small problems in a certain way. Um, And I think um, we need both. We don't need just one. And so in order to be able to understand, um, you know, the, you know, who's at the table and what they can bring to the table, I think it's important to understand the, the different types of building blocks within the social science. Of course, there is some overlap, right? It's not like they, uh, you know, uh, you know, political scientists obviously have real strong strengths in the areas of, of, of governance. Um, and, you know, anthropologists obviously have some real strengths in the area of culture. Um, but also, you know, geography also focuses a little bit on both of those topics. Right, so there's definitely some overlaps between uh, between the different disciplines, but I but I do think strong building blocks are, are a necessary element of good interdisciplinary work, and so just understanding the different disciplines is useful in that way. All right, so Nathan, I want to put you on the spot now. How do you view yourself in all of this? You're, you know, you're, you're you, it, it seems like you are trying to be a bit of a bridging actor or a boundary actor when you think about the different types of skills that you just described, you know how have you found yourself being most effective in this space? Um, yeah, how do I think of myself? I, I mean, I think of myself uh, very much as a social scientist. Um, I've chosen not to delve into natural science uh, or, or, or the natural scientists, sciences in, in any specific way. 
Um, I choose to work with natural sciences scientists when uh, when I want to work on interdisciplinary problems. So that's uh, that's one of the choices that I've I've set for myself. Um, I have uh, chosen to be a bit of a generalist in terms of methodologies. So I've used um, uh, uh, participatory methodologies, quantitative methodologies, and qualitative methodologies. Um, and part of my rationale there is is that I I feel like we often um, uh, disciplinarians can put the tool ahead of the problem. And I personally feel like we need to put the problem ahead of the tool. Um, and so for me, and especially as somebody who works as a, as a consultant and bridges the world, um, I'm often start with, end up starting with the problem and then I need to figure out what tool is gonna, going to match that problem. I um, really like that. Yeah. That, that phrase. But, but putting the tool ahead of the problem is sometimes useful. So if you're trying to make theoretical contributions to the field, um, then you do often want to start with your discipline and you want to start with your theory and you want to build outwards from there and certain tool, you know, certain methodological tools do lend themselves to help you to understand that. So it, it, to me, I'm, I'm very much, uh, an open-minded scientist. Like my, my approach to thinking about science and research is that there's many different approaches and there's no one right approach. Mm -hmm. uh, that, you know, the, there's different, it depends whether you're starting from theory or it depends whether you're starting from a very practical problem, right? Those, those are going to take you different directions across the, on the research path. Yeah. I mean, it's kind of applying the same aversion dependency of thinking that we apply to policy, but to research. Yeah. And saying there's no one best way to answer our, um, our research questions necessarily. I mean, it, some, another thought I have, so I really like this idea and it, I, I think I was trying to grasp at it earlier in this conversation. You said it much more succinctly that professionalization and focus on a discipline lends itself to thinking of certain solutions to yeah. problems. Cause it's part of what we mean by professionalization is you're getting good at, at dealing with problems a certain way. Mm -hmm. I mean, so, something that, so I really like that. I think it also, though, underemphasizes the, the extent to which disciplines lead us to even define the problems in a certain way versus another, which, of course, then helps a certain way of when you define a problem, you're also in part defining what are viable solutions to it. Yeah, absolutely. And so that would bring me to the third way that I define myself, which is that for me, I probably... Well, I am less of the person that bridges across the natural to social. I do work alongside often. I do try to bridge across the social sciences. Um, and uh, in fact, uh, you know, one of the one of the things that I found interesting is that is that sometimes um, so I get approached a lot by conservation organizations and government organizations and everything to talk about the social sciences and what they can bring to their to their field or their uh, um, uh, organization um, and it seems like every, a lot of people have gotten stuck on this idea of discipline uh, they've, they've got stuck on this idea of what discipline should we engage with and what discipline you know what, what um, uh, you know who should we hire even uh, should we hire anthropologists or should we hire uh, economists? Um, and I actually, you know, through bridging across the social sciences, I've been able to see that, uh, in fact, it's, you know, specialists do actually end up coming with limited ideas about how to approach um, uh, conservation because they're only trained in, in one way. So I, I ran some... Um, 
interviews recently for the Smithsonian Institution. Um, and uh, and the, the thing that we were examining was the contributions of social science to their Working Land and Seascapes initiative. And uh, I interviewed a bunch of natural scientists and practitioners and social scientists and uh, about what types of topics and what types of questions did they think were important to examine. So moved away from disciplines towards topics and questions. And what I found is that the disciplinarians uh, of social scientists were actually the ones who came with the least questions to the, to the, to the, to the interview. They actually mostly had questions that were related to their own discipline um, and that were theoretically driven or grounded and less, uh, you know, just big picture questions about gender and culture and decision making processes and policy and, uh, you know, how much fish do people catch, right? I mean, I mean, here on the BC coast, we can, uh, we have millions of data points for, for fish themselves, but we have very little in terms of a comprehensive understanding of how much fish different communities on this coast catch and for what purposes. Uh, is it for food? Is it for livelihoods? Is it for uh, economic benefits? We have our, our understanding of that. So anyways, that's a side point. So the social scientists can have a limited understanding of, of what's, uh, what's necessary. So by being a broad uh, overarching thinker in the social sciences. I'm able to kind of access a little bit uh, from all of those different areas and in doing so maybe be a little bit more of an effective bridge across into policy and practice. Mm. Now it's very well said. So Nathan, you mentioned before uh, I started recording today, this other position that you've had with the um, International Union for the Conservation of Nature or the IUCN. And specifically, mm -hmm. I believe the the position you have is that you are the chair of the People in the Ocean Specialist Group. Yeah. Could you talk a bit about what that role has had you involved in? Sure. Yeah. So, I mean, just to the last point I was making, you know, what I one of the things that I realized is is my passion is is you know thinking about how to bring. Um, these kind of social science dimensions or human dimensions uh, effectively into policy and practice. Um, and, uh, you know, I haven't ended up in a typical academic role. I've ended up in a consulting role and that's enabled me to do that, um, uh, you know, for governments and for philanthropic organizations and for NGOs, I inform them in various ways about how to bring those, those ideas into their, the way they spend money into the types of programs that they create or into the decisions they make on the ground. So that's super, um, uh, I find that really rewarding work. Um, but I also um, have, you know, done some volunteer work over the years for the International Union for the Conservation of Nature. So I've, I've been a member of the World Commission on Protected Areas for a number of years. Um, I also um, was a I think they called me a senior mentor for the uh, uh, conservation social science program where we had some fellows that uh, did some projects on how to bring certain topics into the uh, policy room for IUCN. Um, but one of the things 
that I noticed within the IUCN system is that some, I guess there's, there's various different uh, parts of IUCN that focus on the marine environment. So that includes uh, the marine aspect of the World Commission on Protected Areas. There's a global marine and polar program within the IUCN. Um, and then there's also the Species Survival Commission, which has some uh, specific specialist groups. Um, uh, and, you know, there's fisheries group, there's a, a sawfish and pipefish group, I think. Um, and you know what I when I looked at all of those programs, what I what I saw is that very few of them have a strategic or comprehensive way of thinking about uh, social and governance aspects of the marine environment. Um, so they have you know strong biophysical dimensions and strong biodiversity focused uh, aims, but less on the social side. On the other hand, there's a there's another commission within the International Union for the Conservation of Nature, which is the Commission on Environmental, Economic, and Social Policy. You could think of that as the social or ethical arm of the IUCN. So they they have um, uh, a focus on sustainability and equity at the same time. They have uh, you know uh, programs focused on gender, on indigenous rights, on livelihoods, on human well-being, uh, on effective and equitable governance, on people in nature, um, etc. So there's a number of different programs. But when I looked at what the work that they were doing, the vast majority of their work focused on um, terrestrial, uh, the terrestrial environment. So. Uh, that includes, um, you know, forests, savannas, etc. And they just didn't really have much of a focus on the marine environment, on fisheries, on marine protected areas, or other sorts of things. And so I established the People in Ocean Specialist Group as a as a way to try to bridge those two worlds: the world of uh, marine conservation and ocean governance policy and practice with uh, this kind of social arm of IUCN. Um, and so, you know, the kind of Topical areas there um, are uh, social equity and marine conservation, bringing human rights lens into fisheries management, uh, thinking about inclusion in the blue economy, um, uh, taking a gender dimension to uh, thinking about the oceans, that sort of thing. Hmm. I mean, that's a lot to try to do, actually. <laughs> Yeah, it's a huge amount of work. And, uh, you know, one of the challenges of working with uh, the IUCN is that it's a it's a union of civil society organizations, right? So it's, you know, it's, uh, it's organizations uh, who are working on these issues all over the world. It's individuals who are passionate about certain topics. Mm -hmm. uh, and, you know, there's, uh, everybody pays fees into the system, but there's not a lot of money that comes out of the system to carry out pro uh, projects. Okay. Um, so the entire commission on environmental, economic and social policy has, you know, a small budget of a couple hundred thousand dollars, basically, right? So these, these are the sorts of challenges that we come up against. So people need to be passionate and excited about the topic, they need to have their own networks from which they can draw resources, and they need to build networks to carry out those projects and move them forward okay. so yeah i rely on networks uh outside the of the iucn and uh you know people that are part of it and i and i work with funders to try to find funding to carry out projects um and uh but you know there's a very strong alignment between that work and the work that i'm attempting to do through my consulting and through my my research and academic mm. yeah i mean so it's interesting because i've i've seen the you know iucn a lot just in passing, but never thought much about the internal structure. So it sounds like it's really a network of organizations. 
Yeah, and I th- and I think actually a lot about this uh, idea of global environmental governance structures, right? You think about uh, you know what is IUCN versus uh, the Convention on Biological uh, CBD Convention on Biological Diversity. You know what is the difference? Well, the Convention on Biological Diversity is mostly governments, right? Governments that have agreed to this voluntary commitment under the Convention on Biological Diversity. What about IPBES? What is that? You know, the International or Intergovernmental Science Policy Panel on Biodiversity and Ecosystem Services. What, right? What is that? Um, you know, and and how is it that 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 you know that that one has this kind of governing body and governments do come to it, but it seems like it's mostly driven by scientists. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, they seem to be sci- the ones driving the process. In fact, sometimes I wonder, is it more than just a bunch of science papers, <laughs> you know, the IPBES, uh, or, you know, written by an, an elite group of scientists from all over the world? And how does that differ from CBD? That is governments that's mostly just puts out policy papers and guidance documents from IUCN, which is a real mishmash of civil society organizations and a lot of academics, honestly, because they seem to have the time to be able to commit to to, to pushing forward some of the some of the work. And how do these three different global governance bodies difference in their role and what they can actually accomplish? Yeah, it'd be handy to have just like an online cheat sheet as a public good that describes in like 200 words for each organization, like what is it actually like internally and how does that affect how you might engage with it? Um, well, Nathan, we're, we're well over what the amount of time that I promised you that I think this would take. Um, it's been terrific. Are there some final topics or threads you want to make sure that we touch on um, before we wrap up? No, I mean, I guess, um, you know, obviously, you know, I think probably you, you speak quite a lot to other researchers or academics and to some people who have moved over into the applied or consulting realm or policy organizations or that. Um, I think, you know, maybe just to say that I think there are multiple paths and there's definitely no straight lines here. You know, I do know some people who, who did decide, you know, during their undergraduate that they were going to become an academic and just went straight through and managed to get positions all the way along. Um, uh, But, you know, I think there's other paths out there. I think it requires, regardless of which path you take, for most of us, it requires, you know, incredible tenacity uh, to just kind of keep pushing at it and uh, and often a huge amount of creativity. Um, And then, you know, finally, I mean, I just was see, saw yesterday a tweet from a colleague of mine who, you know, I thought was doing fantastic work in the academy, who's, who just got tenure and then just chose to quit the next day. <laughs> and, 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 you know, the, the reason um, that she provided for why was because she felt like she wasn't able to actually effectively achieve the things that she really wanted to achieve and contribute to in, in her role within the academy and that she felt like she was going to be more effective uh, and happier on uh, outside the academy than inside the academy. And so she chose to, to jump out. Um, yeah. So I guess, you know, obviously um, my path has kind of been circuitous. I, I did and uh, aim to get into the academy and to find a university position. It didn't work out. 
the way that I thought it would. Uh, but the year last year, I've been out of the university system for two years now. Uh, last year and this year, I probably published more papers than I did in any of the years prior to that uh, because of the creativity and collaboration that's been required of me outside of the university system. And so it's just a, it's a switch in mentality. Um, is there certain things I miss about being within the university system? Yeah, I think there's, uh, you know, uh, more potential to drive your own interests in, uh, in your own specific, unique way. Um, but uh, is there a lot to be said for working outside of the academy and the contributions you can make? Absolutely. Uh, they're just different. And, uh, and, you know, I think it's uh, good to have an open mind. Yeah, I mean, I totally agree with that, Nathan. I, I think it's a great point to finish with it. Briefly, it reminds me of a comment that a colleague of mine made to me a long time ago. She was studying the resilience of a set of farmers in Australia. And she said that she had this hypothesis that a lot of these farmers who were men were very vulnerable because of their lack of a diversity of identity, that mm -hmm. if, they, if they couldn't be a farmer, what were they? And right. so when that was threatened, there was this kind of vulnerability or fragility in, in this lack of, of available alternative identities from which they could derive social value. And I've thought about that a lot in the context of this, of kind of what you're saying. And it's always felt like this, this imposed fragility or vulnerability on a lot of folks with PhDs that if you don't do this one path, that you know, that is pick, pick your words, right? That that's the best path. Or um, if you don't do that, then these other things aren't seen as being socially as valuable. And I think it's, it's unhelpful individually that there's this only this one thing that can, that can be perceived as having a social value. And I think that, 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 that introduces this kind of unhelpful fragility that you kind of end up clinging to this one thing. And if I don't do this one thing, then who am I? And of course, this is not at all exclusive to academics and folks with PhDs, right? Lots of folks can be threatened if they only have one type of social value that then is um, taken away from them. Yeah, I think it introduces fragility on one side. And actually, I think it introduces ego on the other. Mm. Um, and, and what I mean by that is, is I, think, uh, I think far too many academics have a big ego uh, about their work and their contribution to the world uh, when, uh, you know, I've sat on hiring processes and hiring boards and, and the decision when you have, you know, 200 applicants, you know, a uh, uh, hundred of them are highly qualified, uh, right. you know, 50 of them match the position. Uh, and then, you know, out of those 50, you know, you start cutting, cutting the edges and you, you, you know, 25 of them would be amazing for the position. And then you have to go have a conversation between the, the priorities of your department and different criteria that you've come up with and those potential 25 candidates. And so at the end of the day, you know, it's like it's like the, the light shining through the window at the moment when pe the, the committee is reviewing the applicants might be the thing that made the decision about who got hired. And so to me, it, it, it makes me think like, wow, you know, why don't academics have more humility about the fact that they were lucky enough to be the ones that got there, but it might've just been the light on the day that the applications were being reviewed that, that led them there. So, so some, sometimes the smartest people I know are actually outside of the university system. Totally. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And so I think, I think it, 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 
yeah, people get fragile and they feel like they feel super attached to the position. I, I struggled with that myself. I'll, I'll be quite honest. It was, it was a struggle to not be able to find the position and, and to feel like, wow, is this uh you know, how come I can't get a position when, uh, you know, this other person and that person is getting a position or wh- whatever, you know, they're, they're, that's really hard. And then on the other side, why do people end up with these big egos when they, when they, when, when, you know, they're really not necessarily all that all the time. <laughs> so, yeah, no, I totally agree. I mean, this is something I've struggled with. Um, you know, a lot of say liberal academics, right, are quite critical of say inequality in broader society. And they want to say, oh, if you, if you're doing well in the economy, that's because you have, this is like a standard kind of liberal rhetoric, right? Which I agree with. If you've done well, it's because you've got privilege and you've gotten lucky, et cetera. There's these systematic things that have also helped you. And then we don't turn that lens around on our own successes and our own group and think, oh, well, maybe I should have some more humility because of the own privileges and fortunes that I've had in my life, right? Exactly. Yeah. Well, on that note, um, <laughs> this has been really great, Nathan. I mean, I appreciate your time. It's been a really good conversation. Yeah, it's been fun to, to, to talk it through. It's always interesting to reflect on your own journey. Thanks for listening, everyone. As always, you can find more episodes as well as entries in our blog on our website, incommonpodcast.org. The Incommon Podcast is the official podcast of the International Association for the Study of the Commons, or IASC. IASC.